Thank you very much, Jessica, for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity. I do want to make a quick comment about the, the hymns. They were chosen on purpose because the topic today centers on what's called theological aesthetics. And I admit the sermon will have a certain thickness to it. Uh, but if the material does interest you, I will mention that we're going to teach a special course that somebody's funding the housing for it in Washington, D.C. this summer on theological aesthetics. If you're interested in that, uh, talk to Jason. On the hymns, though, I, I want to mention this. Um, in the first hymn, Immortal Invisible, you get this, this image of, of God, Yahweh, as being unseeable because of the brightness of the light. But in Christian tradition, that brightness finally is visible for persons who move into the perfection of love. In the second hymn, by the way, good hymns have the music match the words, and those both do. In the second hymn, the, the imagery of the first verse is water overflowing you. It, it's drowning you. By the end, uh, Charles Wesley has brilliantly converted the imagery so that you aesthetically experience, you taste Christ. There's now water that's this fountain welling up within you from which you can drink. And we'll be talking about aesthetics. The gospel lesson that, uh, that led to this sermon is taken from the gospel according to Luke. And it is a passage that is not always read during uh, Lent, but quite often is an assigned reading for Lent. Uh, this is the destruction of the temple being predicted. From the 21st chapter of Luke, verses 5 through 9. Some of his disciples were excuse me, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied. Watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Here ends the reading. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be found acceptable before you our rock, and our redeemer. How beautiful the building is. Now, this is a model of what the second temple supposedly looked like, the site of worship, and what the apostles are saying to Christ is, look at this astounding structure. And his response to them is almost dismissive. To paraphrase, he says, yeah, yeah, sure it is. It's real, real pretty. He was from eastern Kentucky. Uh, it's, it's real, real pretty. But not one rock is going to remain atop another. Now, there's a debate among scholars, and I mean scholars who actually know something about it, unlike myself, um, far more knowledgeable than I, as to whether or not Jesus is simply perceptive about political dynamics or, or whether he is actually describing some future apocalypse. Or maybe he means something else altogether. So on the one hand, maybe Jesus sees the failed leadership of the Sanhedrin, 
the growing concerns of the Romans who were ever worried about uh, the boundaries of their empire, the lands at the edges, or maybe the ever angrier zealots who are arming themselves for rebellion. And Jesus sees the inevitability of a violent clash. He's predicting the destruction of the temple, and it does come in 70 AD, maybe. Another explanation, though, is Jesus is speaking of the eschaton, the apocalyptic end of time when all is destroyed, including this temple and the holy city itself, and then built anew. Or maybe it's neither of those two. Maybe he just thought the building had become eh, a bit too much, a little too extravagant, a little gaudy, a little excessive. Perhaps Jesus was a proto-Methodist. You know, <laughs> the founder of our movement, John Wesley, did not like extravagant religious buildings. He said this, Build all preaching houses where the ground will permit in the octagon form. It's best for the voice and on many accounts more commodious than any other. Let all preaching houses be built plain and decent, but not more expensive than is absolutely unavoidable. Otherwise, the necessity of raising money will make rich men necessary to us. And if so, we must be dependent upon them, yea, and governed by them, and then farewell to Methodist discipline, if not doctrine too. Maybe that's all Jesus is saying. Maybe. By the way, that did not mean that the buildings had to be ugly. If you look at this picture, this is uh, uh, the Bristol building, which is more original than any of the other sites, certainly far more so than the one in London. But even in its simplicity, it maintains a, a proportionate, a commodious beauty. That being said, there really is this tension, this tension in Methodism specifically, but Protestantism generally, over how we can promote simplicity and stewardship and yet also provide reverential, sacred, devotional space. So without denying that Jesus understands the politics of his time, and he certainly knows that there's going to be some future day of the Lord when judgment will occur, it's also undeniable that in that passage about the temple, Jesus is providing a subtext a broader claim about the meaning and significance of beauty. He is addressing the issue of aesthetics, at least at some level. Now maybe, maybe we can get guidance if we look for some other passages that discuss the same topic. Uh, so here are just three. In John 4, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. You'll remember that occurs at the well. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're not a, you are, excuse me, that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews, but a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit or will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So in that statement, Jesus is saying a building can be objectively correct. It can be objectively beautiful, valuable in some sense, and yet still not have ultimate significance. A second passage, Mark 14, of one of the several versions of the anointing. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, spikenard. 
She broke the jar and poured the perfume in his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now listen to how Jesus responds. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, don't get me wrong. The alabaster jar was beautiful. The spikenard has a, a sensuous aroma to it. It's beautiful in that sense. But there was also a beauty in the act itself, something more than the surface beauty of the object. What she did in that moment was beautiful as well, deeply beautiful. And indeed, Jesus says it's deemed of eternal worth because he says this also, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done, that beautiful thing, it will be told in memory of her. And then at the end of the scriptures, there's a third passage to consider. It's the, the revelator's inadequate effort to describe the beauty of heaven in chapter 21. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The revelator is telling us something of beauty that's beyond description, something that no earthly thing can, can genuinely be compared to. So, when Jesus is making his comment about the second temple being torn down, he is making, at least in part, a statement about beauty and what beauty is, about surface beauty and about deep beauty. Yes, he's referring to the power politics of his day, and yes, he may also be criticizing architectural style and excessive expenditures, but in a fundamental sense, he's talking about our relationship with God as being aesthetic. Not exclusively so, but in part. Jesus is making a declaration about the building in order to make a statement about deep beauty. Beauty is a spiritual reality. In that passage, I would assert Jesus is implying, and he's asking his apostles to recognize, there is an eternal significance to some beautiful things, and at the same time, an utter insignificance to other things that are deemed beautiful. Well, to really understand this, we probably ought to deal with a few definitions before we get too lost in, in the thickness of theological aesthetics. What's beauty? What, what is it to which we're referring? Beauty is that which draws an observer through the senses toward the thing or person observed. Beauty is metaphorically magnetic, charming, hypnotic, mesmeric, even captivating. Beauty is what's called a transcendental. In other words, the concept of beauty, the value of the beautiful, it appears in every single culture in the world. Every one of them, at all times, in all places, all through history. That does not mean the content is identical for every person. Cultural upbringing, uh, presumably genetics, those things all have their impact. But the value, the idea of beauty serves as what's called a validity claim for every person in every society to some extent greater or lesser. The other transcendentals, at least traditionally, are with beauty, goodness, and truth. I think it'd be fair to also add two more transcendental values, power and usefulness. They are present for everyone, 
they get balanced in different ways, in different eras, in different cultures, but they're present everywhere. Let me give some examples of how they can be differently balanced, though. Uh, truth, especially in the form of reason, was the central value, the most important transcendental for the scholastics of the Middle Ages, and it remained that so up to early modernity. But at the turn of the early modern period, there started to be some pushing back. Machiavelli talks a lot about power, but, but it's decided that Machiavelli's an outlier. Truth is more important. Machiavelli sticks out too much. In fact, it's offensive. But to understand how things shift in our society, talking about power is simply acceptable. Our period is one of neo-Marxist TikTokers babbling on about the struggle of power, or pop psychology books in airports offering middle managers a newly discovered way to master power dynamics. So you can see that these different transcendentals get emphasized differently at different times in different places, but they're all present. One way or another, they're all present. Now what I'm concerned about is in our society, power has taken such a preeminent place with usefulness secondary a little bit further behind that the other three transcendentals are almost ignored. Beauty, goodness, and truth. Now, a careful observer would have seen this coming. In the mid-19th century, a saying became very popular in the West. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now, what does that mean? It means that there is no intrinsic beauty in anything. Everything is reducible to taste. Then, in the early to mid-20th century, we pushed away on moral absolutes. We said, oh, the right is subjective. We started using what's called situation ethics, which is just a, a form of utilitarianism. We started asserting the good is subjectively defined by its circumstances alone. And now, at the beginning of the 21st century, we're attempting to downplay the transcendental of truth. Oh, no, no, that's your truth. As if truth is individualistically and subjectively understood without any objective facts to it. Now, maybe, maybe this diminishing of truth, goodness, and beauty is why when we look at a passage about the temple being knocked down, we think it's all about power politics. That's what Jesus is talking about. But maybe he's talking about something else. Maybe Jesus is claiming there's something else central to our lives. And we can't see it because we use what Charles Taylor calls an imaginary, a social construct that pushes aesthetics down and out of the way. Or maybe at best, since it's all a matter of individual taste. There certainly are plenty of artists out there, but do they really create anything that has some common value for all? Well, that means if Christians are going to reclaim these things, if they're going to reclaim those transcendentals, especially that aesthetic one, the transcendental of deep beauty, if we're going to do that, we have to understand we will become aliens within the, the world. We will be different than the postmoderns who are around us. We have to resist and even reject the prioritizing of power and usefulness. Now, Jesus is also speaking about valuing goodness and truth, but we're going to focus on beauty because that's the issue when he's talking about the second temple coming down. And quite frankly also, Protestant Christians tend to ignore this transcendental, as was discussed last week. We neglected, by the way, 
at cost to our full spiritual engagement with our Lord. Let's get at this. To do it, we're going to carefully consider this concept of the transcendental beauty, and we need to think about four points. First, there is a validity of beauty that exists in all cultures, even if it's overshadowed in ours. Second, beauty is real in some sense. It may be dependent upon the facility, the capacity and inclination of the observer, but it is also dependent upon the characteristics of the observed. There is an objective reality, at least sometimes. Third, beauty is sensuous. You use your senses, and in doing so, it puts a claim upon the observer. Beauty is the sensuous characteristic of the other be it a thing or a person that draws the observer toward a relationship with the observed. And fourth, and this is often missed, beauty comes in two distinguishable forms, or better put, two differentiable levels. At one level, beauty refers to physical attractiveness, regardless of the personality, the character, anything underneath. Beauty as physical attractiveness draws us be it a beautiful sunset over the desert, or a beautiful impressionist painting, or a physically beautiful woman or man. This is called pulchritudinous beauty. That's an ugly word for a very beautiful concept, as somebody once said. Pulchritudinous beauty. Pulchritudinous beauty, this first type, refers to the sensing of the immediate physical characteristics of an object or being and finds such appealing. This is the beauty that is only skin deep, or is known as prettiness. It can be, although certainly is not always, it can be an indicator of deeper characteristics such as health or fertility, but it can also be deceptive. Presumably, the fruit in the Garden of Eden at the Tree of Knowledge was beautiful pulchritudinously. Now, one of the things that marks pulchritudinous beauty is the longer we're with the object that we deem pulchritudinously beautiful, the more the sense of the beauty tends to dissipate or fade. There's a second differentiable level or kind of beauty, and that's the beauty of the fitting wholeness. The whole is more than the sum of the parts. That wholeness exudes, and we call that deep beauty or inner beauty, or better, we call that sublime beauty. And it draws, as does Polkotrudinous beauty, it draws the observer to the observed, but it tends to grow stronger as one has deeper knowledge of the object or enters into a deeper relationship with the subject who has been found beautiful. Allow me an example, if I may. The difference between Polkotrudinous beauty and sublime beauty. I was having a conversation with a family member who happens to be a physician. And we realized that we both had had a common experience in the NICU, the, the neonatal intensive care unit. We had both experienced parents, uh, apparently talking to themselves, entranced by their newborn children and rhetorically asking in a voice just above a whisper, oh, isn't she beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? When clearly... In the polka trudinous sense, the child was not. To the casual observer, infants in NICUs are rarely beautiful in that sense. They are not cleaned up, they are not dressed up, and indeed, if they're in an NICU, 
they may be atypical in size or features. My relative told me about one particular case. These are her words. The tape securing the endotracheal and nasogastric tubes was irritating and had begun causing breakdown of the child's delicate skin. The nurses had done an excellent job, but nonetheless, the redness where the tape had been for days was evident. Her eyes seemed to protrude from her face and at the same time had a slightly sunken appearance due to the, the thinness of the tissue around them. Her head still had a bandage from the shunt that had been placed by the neurosurgeon for elevated intracranial pressure. Beyond that, the child had several dysmorphic facial features, nothing dramatic, but enough to prevent her from looking normal. Even so, the parents were convinced, as this relative said, convinced that their child was beautiful. They were achingly in love with this child. They were drawn by the child's beauty. This relative of mine and I discussed these children and their parents' words, and we had to conclude, no, they were not delusional, and no, this was not just the desperate denial of a parent in emotional pain. There really was something about that child that was beautiful. Something about the child was sublime, was genuinely and objectively attractive. Now, if you're one of those people who can't stand being in a hospital or you just can't tolerate looking at somebody who may be experiencing pain, I want to apologize for these next pictures, but um, I'm going to use them because they're the artistic tradition of the church. And they represent, by using both the nativity of Christ and the death of Christ in very similar ways, that Jesus Christ may not always be polkatrudinously beautiful, but he's always sublimely so. This is a picture of the Madonna with the long neck. It's an Italian late Renaissance picture. It's in the high mannerism style, which means there's a slight exaggeration of some of the characteristics in the art, uh, usually intended to draw uh, one's eyes to the polkatrudinous beauty of, in this case, the Virgin. The Virgin is dressed in blue, which in artistic convention throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Her gaze is being drawn by the sublime beauty of the Holy Child. Well, we would expect that. This is a Pieta made almost at the same time, a little bit later in the Baroque period. It's a little bit more realistic in its imagery. And it has the disconcerting sorrow of Mary as she holds the dead body of this man who had once been a baby in her arms. Now, one would be hesitant to call the beauty of the dead Christ pulchritudinous, and yet it still draws the viewer. Not in a macabre sense, but because of the sublime beauty of a work completed. And I don't mean the work of the artist completed. I mean the work of Christ is completed in this image. A telos has been achieved. The image is saying to the viewer, it is finished. This is the center of an Ethiopian triptych of the late 17th century. The rest of the triptych is surrounded by angels and apostles and, and several of the important Ethiopian saints. In this particular image, again, the virgin is dressed in blue. She's looking directly at the observer instead of the child in this case. She's looking at you or me as we look at the at the. Uh, icon, as if she's saying, you need to gaze upon this entrancing beauty 
of the one whom I hold. In Christ's left hand is the scriptures. He's pronouncing a blessing with his right hand, using the iota and sigma for Jesus, the chi and sigma for Christ of medieval Greek. But he's looking off to the side as if he's distributing these blessings widely for any and all who would look at him. This next image, this is the Pieta, the mother holding the crucified Christ from the 16th century. Now it's carved with only moderate skill. It's in what's called Spanish folk style. If it was produced today, we'd call it outsider art. Note that the mother is sorrowful. She's looking at the adult Christ. He has a beard. I don't know if you can see that clearly, but he definitely has a beard. But he's been reduced in size so that it mimics the nativity scenes. His work is finished. This was work that was destined from the very time of his infancy. Again, there's little pulchritudinous beauty to Christ's body. It is meant to represent the dead Lord's sublime beauty and to draw the observer to the same conclusion the Virgin displays in her face. This is a 20th century work by Sadeo Watanabe. It's one of his several nativities. He was a, a Japanese artist trained in traditional folk textile dyeing, and he uses Japanese uh, Buddhist figural style, but he uses it for Christian purposes. In this particular one, note the calm of the mother and child as they look into the distance, dis different directions, as if looking into the future to see the fulfillment of the telos of this incarnation event, the accessibility of the good news. Now there's this pulchritudinous beauty to Watanabe's art, but it is the sublime beauty of the relationship between the virgin and child he wants to highlight. He said, I would most like to see my art hanging where people ordinarily gather because Jesus brought the gospel for people. This is a very famous piece called the Röntgen Pieta. It's by an unknown artist of the German Gothic period, the 1300s. And this was a carver who was highly, highly skilled. It was originally painted. It is gruesome. If you look at it, it truly is a gruesome representation. In a sense, it parallels the Christian mystical writing of the era. Mary has her hand down in the blood that's pouring from the side of Christ. She seems desperately in love and now not entirely sure what she should do as she laments the death of her son. The craftsmanship is beautiful. But it pushes us to the sublime even while the image itself is almost horrifying. And this is one that's a favorite of mine. It's, it's the Madonna and Child of Barsico, 13th century German Gothic, not nearly of the same quality. It's of middling skill. It was painted, the colors are lost. I included it because it helps illustrate this ongoing theme that pulchritudinous beauty is only of value eternally if it points to sublime beauty. But I also included it because, for me, this was a complete sensory experience. I was walking with my wife along a pilgrimage. This was a family who hosted us in a town where there were no restaurants, no stores, and no hotels. And they had found, a few months earlier, this particular statue in their church. It had been hidden, literally, since the Reformation. And they had pulled it out and cleaned it up. And they're going to put it back in the church, but they were, were waiting until they could build a, a secured case because the church is, the building is often left unlocked. As I held this, 
I simultaneously sensed centuries of believers before me who had been similarly drawn by beautiful work from a craftsman that pointed to, beyond itself, the beautiful work of Christ. One more. This is a work that was done at almost exactly the same time in almost exactly the same place by a very, very skilled carver. The paint and the gold gilt remain. The virgin again is in blue. Note the physically tortured dead body of Christ. Again, as in one of the earlier images, it's disproportionately small, likely intended to visually remind us of the, or excuse me, remind the devout of the nativity and inevitability of the offering of Christ. Now, much later, much, much later, end of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. We have a, a French realist painter by the name of Bourgeois. He was not one of, but he overlapped the styles of the English pre-Raphaelites. He painted this picture. It's called the Madonna of the Lilies in 1899. The reason I wanted you to see this is he painted another picture a decade, two decades earlier called the Pieta, and he used the exact same female image for the Madonna. Exactly. The same model. And she's not aged at all in the two pictures. In doing so, he's trying to convey that the devotion of the Virgin is always pointing us to this sublime beauty of the Christ. These are the two pictures cut in half and set next to each other. And he surely did this on purpose. The Virgin fits identically into the picture, whether it's the Pieta or whether it's the Nativity, with Christ on one hand in one image, Christ on the other hand in the other. Now consider too this. I don't know if you can see it clearly or not, but this juxtaposition is a mother in an NICU holding her child. And the image on the other side is one of those pictures I showed you of the Pieta, of the Mother Mary gazing upon the sublime beauty of our now dead Son and Savior. When this relative and I looked at these pictures and looked too at, uh, at these historic images, we recognized that the pulchritudinous beauty of visual art and architecture in the church or in the second temple is a penultimate good that only is of enduring value to the extent that it points to the sublime beauty of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with pretty things, but they are going to fade away. Only the final beauty of the beatific vision will endure. Beauty, therefore, is a transcendental we should be promoting in postmodernity. We should be defying the world, along with, by the way, promoting goodness and truth. Beauty is something that can objectively be in a person. At least sublime beauty can be. It's objectively true that the crucified Christ is beautiful, that the baby in the NICU is beautiful. And to conclude that, that you're beautiful, that you are, pulchritudinously aside, you're sublimely beautiful. God is like that mother holding the broken child in the NICU. God is like the Madonna holding the crucified Christ. They see beauty in you because there is beauty. Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the offspring of her womb? 
Even these may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God is beautiful. God is sublimely beautiful. He is drawing us to himself, but he also sees the sublime beauty in you. He is drawn to his creation, to his artwork, to you. So this week, Holy Week, allow yourself as you consider the cross to be drawn, enticed, attracted to the beauty of God even in the crucifixion. Contemplate the beauty of his wounds, his blood, his offering. It is a beautiful gift. He gave it to you because he thinks you're sublimely beautiful. And to go back to that New Testament text, he gave it to you because you are the beautiful temple that will hold the Spirit of God.